Now she is, Captain. Isn't she a beauty? Yes, she is, Mr. Scott. Is she ready to go? Aisa. She's ready to go to the stars. This is the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. It's mission to seek out new ideas, find new games, and to boldly bring the awesome to your game. Mr. Scott, Warp 9. I Captain. And now, our host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Pixie. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. Your podcast where you end up in a strange place and all of a sudden look up and realize, wait, how'd you get here? How did you even know this place existed? I don't really care how I know this place existed. I just want to go home. Tonight, we are continuing my report on how Bureau 13 OGL had content from the Second World Sourcebook by Stephen Palmer Peterson added in. It was something that I had done due to the open license that Mr. Peterson put into the Second World Sourcebook that everything in it was product identity. And so I decided when we did Bureau 13 OGL, oh God, 05, 06, to add elements of that setting into Bureau 13 and make it all canon. Uh, This is actually an idea given to me by Bruce about a month ago, and we are going to explore how various entities and personages in the Bureau 13 established canon, how they relate to how the second world is involved. You have joined the most secret government agency that you have never heard of, the 13th Bureau of Justice, otherwise known as... Zero thirteen. You are a government agent charged with the duty of disposing of the greatest unnatural threats to the people and the, and the economy of the United States and Canada. You will work under the knowledge that you are funded by an organization so secret, even the highest government officials do not know of your existence. Welcome to the elite band of people who wander the dark streets of the night, ever searching for the horrors that should not exist in this modern age. You are a special agent, stalking the Night Fantastic. Bureau 13 is a Gen Con award-winning RPG of modern horror and paranormal adventure. It's available from Tritag Games at tritaggames.com in both the original editions and in the D20 edition, with a new Savage Worlds edition coming soon. Remember that wherever the supernatural waits, good and evil, the agents of Bureau 13 will be there, but the evil is growing. The one I got next, as I said, it's the Sheffer family. Now, let um, does somebody else want to feel this one real quick here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, fine, I'll do it. Jeez. Um, well, you you want you want me to do my uh, my own thing here? 
Well, you know, don't break your arm, pat yourself on the back. But <laughs> no, okay, because I didn't write this up, so you know. Uh, oh, all right, all right. Based in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, a family of outstanding businessmen that date back to the turn dates from the turn of the previous century. Right. Uh, Sherper family has its fingers in politics, entertainment, newspapers, brewing, and countless other facets of everyday life. Use of the Shepherds requires owing them a favor that they will always collect later on in the future. These favors will always be legal in nature for a good cause. Several of the Shepherds have become bureau agents in the last 20 years. All have performed with honesty and perseverance no matter the situation. The family considers having family in the bureau a badge of honor. Now, as we said, politics, entertainment, newspapers, brewing, and countless other facets of everyday life. Corporations. The Shepherd family, from what I see, would have, due to interactions on a business level with Solstice International and the Blue Conglomerate. Solstice International is based in Virginia. Blue Conglomerate is based, I believe, up in New York. So with as many fingers that the Shepherd family has and the various pies around, they would have had contacts with various business entities around the country. Many of them deal with the second world, including Solstice International and the Blue Conglomerate or BlueCon. So definitely I, I saw that. I was like, oh, yeah, they, they would know about it. They would have found out about it to, to just, you know, corporate boardroom mingling and whatnot. Well, I'm not sure, Trav. I, I really aren't because, I mean, as you say, facets of everyday life. I mean, they if, if these corporations do try to keep it on the down low, then they might believe that there's something supernatural involved in those corporations, but they wouldn't necessarily realize it links to an entire different realm. So I, I don't think that necessarily they would, uh, but it doesn't mean that they wouldn't be ready to handle anything that might come from any realm, wherever it might be, uh, because of their connections to all these different things. Well, the main thing that Solstice International and BlueCon deal with as far as the second world is cross-world trade. That's what their main connections are, is shipping magic items and whatnot from the second world, and, in and, and they're in the shipped gates. And in return... Cheaply made first world products that work in the second world. How we can mass produce spy glasses. We can mass produce them by the millions with our technology, and they work just fine in the second world. Therefore, if you go to Solstice International or a Blue Con outlet in the second world, you can buy a spy glass for a lot cheaper than the thousand gold pieces that's in the and in, in OGL books, because the first world can crank them out by the millions per per month. So that cross world trade is how that works. For easy, easy to use first world technology for second world magic items. Okay, so I'm wondering how how complex an object can be. So okay, a spyglass, very simple, two lenses, you know, bang, you know, bangs your uncle. Pair, pair of uh, binoculars. Uh, binoculars are fine, too, because remember, the optics function works in the second world. That's why you have spyglasses. Binoculars would work just fine. Um, 
certain types of medical kits and certain types of uh, like a World War One lighter. Those work in the second world just fine. So there are a lot of first world products that can be made that work in the second world that don't violate the particular laws of physics and magic there. And that cross-world trade is what most first-world corporations are involved with, such as Solstice International, run by Patrick McCann, who is involved in the Cabal families, which will be mentioned later, and the Blue Conglomerate, which they started out as a transportation conglomerate. So, like, planes, shipping, trains, whatnot... And all of a sudden, they got involved in cross-world trade. You go to the City of Runes, and the Blue Con Tower in downtown Manhattan has, like, a bazaar on the first floor. And it's open air, which, I mean, to get in, it's like arches all around. And you can get all sorts of Blue Con products. And you can get other products there because Blue Con rents out stalls for a fee. You could have, you know, Joe's Potion Shop there in the Blue Con Plaza. And as long as you're giving part of your cut to Blue Con for rental fees, you can sell your potions there. Or you can buy those aforementioned cheaply produced first world items there at a Blue Con place. And it's all due to the cross world trade. And I just deduce that because the Shepherd family are heavily into business and politics and entertainment, newspapers and brewing and all these other things. They would have come across that in some way. They would have some knowledge of the second world. It may not be a lot of knowledge, but they at least know that, wait a minute, there's interdimensional trade going on? Hmm. They would be, yeah, they would be in on the ground floor of that idea, and they may not know just how far that rabbit hole goes, but they would have an inkling. Now, I can also see, you said brewing. I can see a trade for a non-magical item. Oh, no, remember, in the second world, Budweiser and carbonated soft drinks are considered high-class beverages in the second world. I mean, you can sit there and go to a tavern. Oh, wow, you can get, you know, an ale or even elven mead. But if you're drinking a Budweiser or a Pepsi, oh, son, you're schwanky. Well, Well, it's kind of like here in this country how... We have all of our, oh, we have Dos Aki and we have Foster's and we have Kirin beer. Yeah, we like them because they're exotic. Pretty much from what I've heard in the countries they come from, and I'm not disparaging these particular brands, but I've heard generally that those particular brands in their home nations are kind of <clears throat> low grade. They're kind of like our PBR, which I'm not. I will. I will say it. He- Heineken is the Budweiser of Europe. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. But yeah. So inter- interdimensional trade is big. And as I said, even bringing over Budweiser and Pepsi, you pay a pretty penny for a Budweiser or Pepsi, and it's considered a high society drink in the second world. But what I'm thinking, what I was thinking of, okay, so we bring you, we will bring a, a pallet load of Budweiser. We want a pallet load of that, of that, of that dwarven ale you make it, or dwarven ale. Or better yet, oh, John, better yet, from the Appalachian Dwarves entry, the White Lightning. Oh. Where 
Oh. Yeah, just remember that, you know, there's this substance that is eaten with great zeal over in another country that's called Vegemite. Not all oh, ale oh. tastes good to oh. everybody. Oh, dude, I have smelled that. And I, you know, because I'm Aspie and I got sensory issues, I'm sure that to a neurotypical, that smelled pretty damn foul too. Just, I, I took a whiff of this and I recoiled visibly when my friend Bill Corsack, I'm just like, oh God, what is that? And he's like, this is Vegemite. And he, and and our other friend Aaron's like, oh yeah, there are kids in Australia that spread it on crackers and eat this like it's nothing. I'm like, oh, never has the term acquired taste gained clarity of meaning. <laughs> right. But the point is, is that just because... It's, uh, you know, it, it's something everyone always talks about, you know, elven ale, dwarven ale, all this stuff like that. And, you know, I'm and some of it, I'm sure, is like ambrosia. But there's probably other stuff that only dwarves would <laughs> would, yeah. would drink because, you know, it, it suits their biochemistry. Right. It suits right. their history. I mean, uh, you know, maybe they put ghost peppers in it. You know, yeah. it may be dangerous oh, for no. other races to drink. Hey. Or it may taste like Jägermeister. But it, it may be dangerous for some some people to drink. But if you really want to get messed up, <laughs> there you go. Oh, no. White yeah. Lightning, I don't. Because um, in, in the Appalachian Dwarves entry of the Second World Source book, there is something you can get. And you usually get it if you get in good, if you become a good old boy. And it's called White Lightning, and it's sort of quasi-alchemical, quasi-magical. I mean, you can do an alchemy check and make it, or you can just do craft brewing. And yeah, it gets you lit. You're, you're, it knocks you on your butt. It also renders you immune to pain effects for a certain time. You lit, When they say you're feeling no pain when you get drunk on this stuff, you literally are not feeling pain. So, yeah, that would be another cool thing to ship over in return for a pallet of Bud and, you know, a couple pallets of cans of Pepsi, you know. So some so of the more weird weird uh, brews coming out of that area, if, hey, for all you know, they're not brewing them. They're just simply – they're just bringing good old-fashioned pale ale and saying it over. And they're getting, and they're getting, uh, getting barrels or, or kegs. Uh, there are some they didn't have to turn in bottle, but that's fine. They, they, they're good at bottling. And yay, he got all these weird beers coming out of this one little brewery. You wonder what, the, you know, but you look at the malt bill, and they, they, they're only just making pale ales. And how come they're making all these quasi-Belgian-like beers? Yeah, because they're bringing them from the second world. Oh, the brewing. Oh, I just, yeah. Let I'm, I'm trying to keep the, the tangent to a minimum. But, oh, with the technology that would be available in, like, second world Europe and their ability to make stuff because they have steam tech as opposed to the rest of the world. Oh yes. Anyways, let's, let's get back on track here because we tangent horribly. All right. That's just an understatement. I heard that young lady. Anyway, the next person who would know about the second world and it would be due to his ultra high security clearance and he's also probably been there a few times, the Clockwork City. Yes, folks, you don't know pressure until you have to make stats for your boss. Yes, Richard Taholka wanted to be a character in Bureau 13 OGL, so I made the stats. And I was sweating bullets 10 years ago I did that until I remembered Rich knows nothing of D20 Modern. I could hand him the stats and he'd be fine with it because he wouldn't know any of them. 
Paul McDonald gave him a D20 monitor book. I saw him hand it to and Rich just looked through it and he gave that contorted like <clears throat> face because he just didn't get the rules. But yes, Richard Taholka, a semi-retired Bureau 13 operative, Taholka was the former head of the disinformation department and the only DC office survivor of the massacre of 77. And so Rich would know just because if, if you're the if you were the head of the disinformation department, you were in the D. Oh no, son, that's super high bureau clearance. That's double top secret, confidential, eyes only type stuff. He would know about the second world. And with this incarnation of Rich, he would have probably have, if not access to a shift gate through favors. He might even have had in that, what is it, the current cover is that of a senior computer technician, part-time role-playing game designer. However, his basement secret office is a fortified arsenal of paranormal files and a few artifacts. Who says one of those artifacts doesn't allow for inter interstitial travel? Basement would be bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Well, just uh, don't don't go there. No. Yeah. Just don't. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I've been in the if nothing local. else, he, if nothing else, what I know of the overall paranoia of the bureau, he'd have it just as a quick getaway that no one can follow. Oh, exactly. Very good, Josie. Yes. Oh no, Rich. Actually, as someone that. who was a survivor of the massacre of '77, he would always have an out. Or I had always have four or five outs. What? What is that, Josie from uh, the Avengers? Even his secrets have secrets. Yeah. <laughs> And what I was alluding to was that he, you know, he may actually have an office on the other side and just pop through and pop through. I wouldn't yeah. put that. I wouldn't have put that past Rich, considering yeah. he would have had something set up in the Clockwork City, what I call Second World Detroit. Oh no, I wouldn't have put it past him at all. He would have done something like that easily, just done. And oh look, here's yet another secret bookcase. Walk. Oh look, and he could hire a gate warden to establish a permanent portal between first and second world. Again, having been the head of the disinformation department of the Bureau and the only DC survivor of the Massacre of 77, the pull that this Rich Stahoka would have had, it would have been massive. And he could have got a lot of things done, and it's like it would have just been Rich calling in favors from old friends because that's how Rich rolled. We all know this. Just mm. So, yeah, I, I looked and I said, and I'm going through, I go, oh, come on, he would know. <laughs> I mean, he, and he's got, yeah, Knowledge Arcane 31, Knowledge History 30. Oh, yeah, he would know of the second world. Make that Knowledge Arcane roll because you pick up the die on a D20, that's a DC 32. You know most things of an arcane nature with a DC 32. So, but, yeah, definitely. What was that, Josie? Ahead of. Head of disinformation. Yeah, you have to know what you're hiding to be able to hide it effectively. Very good. Okay, the next one <laughs> would be the White Witch up in Wilmar, Minnesota. Barbara Platt is a descendant of the family who fled the witch trials of Massachusetts and is a practicing expert of white magic. Yeah. Um, in the past. Oh, yeah, she would, definitely. In the PACT system PDF, which, for those of you listening now, 
I put in the fans of the TriTech Games podcast four, and they were free on the old Second World site, four PDFs that had to do with the Second World Sourcebook. One of them is the PAC system, which allows for the use of PAC gates and has the Gate Warden class. Now, in that class are these packed gate spells, like the first level, there are four levels of pack gates. The first one would be like a third level cleric spell or a second level sorcerer or wizard spell. The white witch would have packed gate spells. That's how she would know of the second world, because the packed gates, besides getting various powers, oh look, you would also get things like knowledge, where she would find out that the second world exists. Her, let's see, do we have stats for her? Oh, no knowledge planes, but a knowledge arcane lore 29. Again, pick up the die, DC 30. She would know of the second world just for mystical knowledge and using packed gate spells. So, yeah, she would know about the second world. She's up there in rural Minnesota. She may not get any supernatural incursions, but the White Witch, and I remember her from the 92 edition, she would be a go-to person on, okay, we need knowledge on the second world. You know, we've had something come in. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know. So, yeah, she would definitely know. Mm-hmm. Now, the next one, again, this is the second one. Hey, Trav. Yeah. Uh, I think also what would she would be, since what she would be a primary thing for would be possibly some knowledge about the races of the second world because she knows so much about supernatural natural. Oh, yeah, she's got, as I said, uh, plus 29 arcane lore, plus 13 theology and philosophy, which is religion, which means any undead that might come from the second world she would know about. Uh, Knowledge history, 29, so that's DC 30 checks on history. She might even know about the sundering. Right, but but I don't think she would probably know anything about the history or the ongoings in the second world. However, she might very well know about the races of the second world and could advise agents on what would be good banes to use against them if necessary. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Excuse me. Because remember, that's one of the big differences between Bureau 13 and a lot of other agencies is the fact is that they are very good at using Banes to neutralize the supernatural without having to destroy it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Research plus 29. Yeah, DC 30 research check. Again, she knows a lot of things about a lot of things. Um, Now, this next one. Okay, remember I mentioned about a half hour ago I said... There are two people they know because of just who they are. J.P. Withers. Why would he know about the second world? He's J.P. Withers. This is a man who has seen it all and done it all in the Bureau. This is one of those characters. Probably been there. Oh, no, no. Oh, no. As soon as I I ran through the list, one of the first names I thought, oh, Withers would know. (laughs) So... He, so he's basically the epitome of been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Yes. J, um, Bruce, right. you said there was something also about J.P. Withers, about that character? Yeah. Well, he has – he's basically um, has absolute sight. He, he basically sees reality as it truly is. And so he is more than aware of the second world. Okay. 
it's it's like you know he he just he knows where it is and and he can just look and know where the concentrations are. He just mm-hmm. has this kind of a of a gestalt of of the world around him, and it is. It is tough on him. That's one of the reasons he's uses pharmacological substances is to try because his his brain is still a human brain and it's not designed to be able to handle this kind of stuff. Oh, I just figured out a good way to describe what you just said. Bruce and John, have you heard of a concept called the Akashic Record? No. Okay, it's sort of the the best way to describe it. Imagine pretty much all of the access, access to everything that everybody knows on a mystical level. That is what the Akashic record is where you, if you concentrate, you can learn if you, it, it's kind of like a, a broad cosmic version of Sherlock's mind palace. It sounds it, an awful like the, the collective unconsciousness. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's another name for the Akashic record. Um, a, a way to put this into the pact gate system for the second world there is one of the many packs that you can make. It's called the Cognate Architecture. Imagine a dimension of just nothing but sparkling lights. That is where the multiverse's knowledge is. And if you know how to get to the right sparkle of light, you can learn everything. JP, I would say, has, let's just say, a permanent pack gate, fourth level pack gate spell with the Cognate Architecture. He knows everything, sees everything. And he's still trying to process it with a human brain, which means he doesn't want. Yeah, which means he doesn't really want to know everything and see everything. Yeah, um, as I said, but JP he would know about the second world just because of the knowledge of the cosmos that's been dumped into his head. He yeah. knows that there is an analogous Earth, more fantasy and magic based, quote unquote right next door with just the Ford separating them. Oh, I, I imagine if, if a beer team had gotten caught on the second world and needed help, he's been there to rescue them. Yeah. With massive craters to show that he was there. And so for some, for some reason, his dynamite always works. Oh, that's a creepy thought. JP is the ultimate warden, which means he's got access to all 12 powers from dream to pattern. Oh yeah. I wouldn't put JP past that. I would put it. I would. Put it. Um, yeah. But from a game standpoint, I was supposed to that later. but from What's a that? game standpoint, it would make a lot more sense to say that he has access to all of them, but not all at the same time. Oh no, 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 no. He but, still only has a human brain folks. Yeah. So he can only do so much, but it's the fact that just JP is the best. He's a force of nature. It's the best way to describe him. And no one knows where he gets his dynamite from because it's all old style dynamite circa 1970. Yeah. (laughs) They don't make it anymore like that. Yeah. No one knows. Less people even want to know. Well, yeah. Well, what what was that, Josie? I told you, if you have to ask, you don't want to know. And then my daughter's rule six. But if you do ask, you must learn everything. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to embrace rule six this time. I don't. <laughs> well, no, Josie. JP Withers is another real person that Rich knew, so uh, he got a big kick. The name. 
And I, and I still know. Yeah. JP, from what I heard from Richard Bruce, got a big kick. What, you're going to make me a character like this? And then just now how he is now. Oh, no, no. It was worse than that. JP Withers, okay, was uh, heavily medicated and he sat down for a bureau uh, to the bureau 13 session. He said, okay, I'll whip up a character real quick. And, and Richard said, no, use this one. <laughs> and he hands him, he hands, he looks down and it's himself as a bureau 13 character. Oh, and he said, no. and, and he said it was like looking down a hall of mirrors with the reflections <laughs> within the reflections. Well, it's the fact that Rich knew him that well and just said, no, play this one. Oh, dear God. He, did, he, didn't know, he didn't know him that well. I wrote the character up. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Rich just handed it like off said, and, and just it watched it happen. Yeah. Now, he, he is the only character in the book who doesn't actually have a stat block because basically, for all intents and purposes, he's a god and you don't kill gods. Yeah, well, it's the old phrase, and Joseph knows this. You can't, if you don't stat it, you can't kill. kill. Yep, yep. <laughs> I taught you well. Yeah. Okay, the next one is Wipachowski, the cabbie in Manhattan. Hi. First World New York. Yeah, New York City. Second World New York, the city of runes. Remember, in the great cities, the dimensional barriers are a little thinner. You tend to, if you're in these areas in the first world, it's really easy to be exiled. Wipachowski has seen some stuff, folks. This is darting in I and out of downtown. The, what was that? Not, oh, just hope you're not in the uh, subway when it happens. Oh, yeah. More on that in a bit. <laughs> darting in and out of the downtown traffic in New York City is a paranormal cab driver named Wajo Wipachowski. For the past four decades, Wajo has been the voice of supernatural happenings in the Big Apple, along with being the best cab driver in the city. Um, yeah, basically since 1964, his checker cab has gone unscratched to the terminal in New York traffic, and the last smuggler who dared pull a gun on him was struck by lightning a few feet from his cab. Um, yeah, Wipachowski would know, because let's face it, with the incursion, with the, excuse me, the power of the rune, that means magical transits happen all the time. He would know about all sorts of stuff going down. And to allude what to what the professor said a few seconds ago, <laughs> in, well, rather under Second World New York. <laughs> oh no, because I've ran this adventure. She knows what I'm there is a well, it's it's a blue dragon, but it's more the Asian imperial type, which means it's wingless and it's a lot more, it's a lot longer, known as Tycon. Now, there are no subways in Second World New York, yet there are tunnels that look like old subway tunnels. That there is Tycon's stomping grounds. Now, Wipachowski would probably know about Tycon, at the very least due to the various things that he has seen come through into First World New York. And it, it says here, a matter of... The supernatural, the voice of supernatural happenings in the Big Apple. If anyone would know about the City of Runes, it would be him. Because he could turn a corner or he could, you know, go down an alley 
and all of a sudden there's some supernatural being or a warden that just popped in and damned if I went to, hey, Wajo, how you doing? Yeah, it's good to see you again. Yeah, I'll only be here for a couple of days. You know, that's just how Wajo rolls. And so definitely he would have knowledge of the second world almost firsthand. I wouldn't be surprised if he'd be another one of those people who, because, you know, his checker cab has been unharmed in 40 years, that who knows, he might be a war, he might be a metal warden. He might, if he goes through a portal, he can still drive around in the second world and then go back through that portal. Yeah, I'm back in the first world. Where are you at? Oh, you wouldn't believe the fare I just had. You know. Actually, it would be 50 years now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's see. 1964. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. So here, uh, so we never did, never did touch on this, but has he aged or is he always the same age? Uh, let's see. Short and stocky, this bull of a man is a rough exterior, but a heart of gold tarnished with tobacco stains. Speaks more than a dozen languages as well as Hindi and Swahili. Who's to say that some of those languages aren't like dwarven, elven, gnome, half orc? Just saying. And you just answered my question. Yeah, you if you if you know where you need to go, you can probably catch a cab there. Oh no, as I said, he would be <laughs> let's see, during dire bureau emergencies, he's always close. He will not approach the former Twin Towers site. Tip him well. Yeah. I could le- I can at least imagine, yeah, you probably could catch a cab. Catch if you can catch him, you can catch him to where you need to go in either New York City. Yeah. Oh no, that's what I'm saying. He might know where there might be a portal. Well, because in the second world, you can get first world files. You can make a first world call with the cell phone from House Usher. Who's to say that there isn't a place down some side alley that Wajo can just go down and boom, you're in the second world. And because he's a metal warden, he can keep that car running. He's another character in the in this book who doesn't have a stat block. Who's to say? Who's to say that Wajo? I'm 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 going to because it's just recently available uh, streaming. Uh, is could be a uh, one of those new American gods. Oh, dude! I saw the first episode of that. Oh my gosh, it was wonderful. Okay, we're going now to let's see um, neutrals. Well, no, I still got... Well, I and this one I didn't add on the list, but I'll do this. Shannon Trish. The people, again, real people, I was best man at the Renaissance-themed wedding at Hartwood Manor outside of Pittsburgh in the Allegheny Mountains. And yeah, they're a married couple. They run the Midwest Renfest circuit. They are also Team Cavalier. Now, in Pennsylvania, there is the Huron Wild, which pretty much is where the Iroquois-raised elves are based all through Pennsylvania and um, almost up upstate New York. Dimensional incursions with the elves. It wouldn't be, I wouldn't put it too far off that Shannon Trish know either Iroquois or Elven. I wouldn't put it past the Gallatins at all because of the fact that you would have these incursions from the Huron, not just from the elves, you know, maybe traveling and visiting, but let's face it, this is a massive forest. All sorts of fae circles and fae glades and whatnot. That's all sorts of dimensional incursions popping through. So, yeah, Shannon Trish, Team Cavalier, Pittsburgh area, 
they would have knowledge there. They would have knowledge of the second world from stuff like that. Uh, let's see. Oh, wait a minute. I think now we can go to the neutrals. Uh, John Leatherman, master of big business and corporate finance. Prime helper of Bureau 13 is the ability to locate in financial records, gain access to large amounts of ready capital in short order or launder money. Um, oh, no, I said that. No, he's got now he has business connections with Solstice and Bluecon. So he would know the second world on that cross trade level. He may not be involved with it, but he knows about it because this man, it, I just read it right here. He can ferret out all sorts of information and capital and records. He'd be able to find it. He's got some mojo. To, he can blow some influence points to gain the favor of various amounts of information. He would know about the second world. And it even says, while hard to contact, John is friendly and easygoing. Unless you're on the other on the other end of a negotiating table, then he's a bulldog. This guy would not be... He, he would not be afraid to play hardball and get this information. I wouldn't put it past John Leatherman to do it. But he would definitely know of the second world, at least from the cross-trade standpoint. He may not get involved with it, but he knows about it. He might partake of it now and then. Just, just saying. Let's see. Who did I have next here? Oh, the, ki the kitchen witches. Part-time spellcasters who dabble in good magic. Again, these are the people that, oh, look, we don't have the right spell component. Let's use this. A priceless gem, a common gem, or shopping network jewelry. Animal sacrifice, a fresh chicken leg, or a KFC chicken leftover. Just they're screwing around, and they're going to open a packed gate somewhere or a dimensional portal, and out walks through, you know, let's say if it's in, in L.A., some dream warden comes through. You know they're they're gonna they're gonna stumble on the second world in some way, and kitchen witches and whoopee witches, which we'll talk about later, are definitely the ones who would end up exiling. And the thing about exiles is that they get powerful in the second world, and then they come back. And if they learn expatriation, which is learning to either get rid of exile or to hold it off as long as possible, they'll come back and they'll be able to interact here back on the first Earth, first world after a while. I had to come back for my son's wedding. Don't forget, this is not any kind of an organized group, okay? We're talking about a few here and there that might yeah. this would happen to. But in general, the kitchen witches are clueless, okay? That's part of what they are. And now it's worse because they, now they have the internet to get, fake, get spells from. Yeah, yeah, we know that, yeah, yeah. Okay, then um, I got one, two, three, four, five, six. And I'm going to try to um, be relatively quick with the rest of these here. Oh, you, you can't skip him. Oh. Zorch. Zorch the prophet. If this man got it, he tripped over it. This is not due to research. This is not due to... He gained one of his... Uh, new campaign to wipe out beats in our lifetime or abolish hubcaps. Outstanding luck, which allows him to be at the right place at the wrong time. Oh, yeah, I'm doing this rally because I want to get rid of um, white stripes on the side of tires, which would be another Zorch-type cause. And he ends up right in the middle of an interdimensional incursion from the second world. 
That's how he would find out about the second world. Not through any deliberate attempt. Right. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. This actually came from the mouth of J.P. Withers. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Having what most people would consider to be a completely normal adventure, you know, following the clues, whatever. He finally stands up and says, I know exactly what this is. They're mutant Nazi, uh, Nazi clone zombies from Mars. And he tried to convince everybody else in the room that he was right. That is, that's basically what Zorch does. He gets an idea, he holds on to it, and he just runs with it, and he convinces everybody around him that he's right. So he would like, you know, come into a find a gate or he'd find something else as being influenced by the second world, and he would totally misinterpret it. And he would then go and, you know, so he's attracted by these places. You know, they 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 call to him and he's got he's drawn to them. But when he gets there, he completely misrepresents them because not because he's trying to, because he really does believe he knows what's going on. And that's so no, he doesn't really know anything about it. He's just there all the time. And he, he's also the person who can get a, a group of various individuals, you know, you know, the nastiest looking brute you ever seen, seen in your life, singing songs together and holding hands, because that's Zorch. He's unaware that he has the ability to empathically mind control those around him. So, yeah, that's where he can get people to convince, you know, convince some of these weird things, because he's got this latent talent that he taps into it, but he doesn't realize he has it. Okay, the next one. And this is a new one that I don't know who added Orog Time Master. But I was looking at this and I go, okay, this guy's kind of cool. Yeah, okay. Sort of Neanderthal looking. Basically, Bureau 13 is an occasional visitor that is an enigma. The most brilliant inventor of a time forgotten. Orog shows up when he needs something or warns Bureau agents of future problems. Um, two words, folks. Vector Warden. If he's a time traveler and he's doing it, what is it here? Master of Time with Wood, Stone, and Crystal. He's a Vector Warden. Pure and simple. That, I mean, just, you don't need, there's no stats for him, but yeah, he's a Vector Warden. And so he would know about the second world due to the power of Vector, which is based in Mbanza in the Congo on the second world. But just, yeah, as soon as I read through his entire thing, oh yeah, and I just wrote those two words here on my paper, Vector Warden, and just left it at that. Person he visits all the time is Robert Harrison. And I love Robert Harrison's only comment has been, I call him father, and he drinks my beer. <laughs> <laughs> He's up there with, with Dr. Dinosaur. That's a totally different universe. So Okay. Uh, the Carstairs Wade family. Um, a family with a long tradition of alchemists and sorcerers. The Duchess is just under six feet tall, and the force of her personality is such as she is generally remembered as being even taller. Her physical appearance is somewhat between Snow White and Fashion Diva with coal black hair, emerald eyes, and a pallor that would that Wednesday Adams would be proud of. On the far back hills of West Virginia, there is a family in a town with a monumental secret. East of Blackthorn Road, where Delta Road 4 ends, is a small town in New Frisia and the site of the long-abandoned New Frisia anthracite mine. Small group of homes and a population of 200 are under the protection of the estate of the surviving members of the Carstairs Wade's clan. Members of the Soul family are steeped in a long tradition of sorcery and alchemy that goes back to the dying days of the Roman Empire. They know the Appalachian dwarves. And they probably have their help. The Duchess here. I found out who this is based on, actually. 
the Duchess here particularly. Mel. Rich told me a few years back, and I'm like, I, I, I'm looking there. I go, Carcer Wade's family just looks at me and he says, Mel. And I go, okay then. <laughs> because I do know Mel, Mel was from down south. So yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. And oh no, they would know the Appalachian Dwarfs, hands down. That's that's their connection to the second world. West Virginia, yeah, you're in the Appalachians there. It also looks like the the family also has ties to banks in Switzerland, the Russian mafia, the Chinese tongues, and Yakuza. So there's three more, four more places that they actually have access. Oh yeah, they 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 besides being sorcerers and alchemists, from what it also sounds like, they are massive information brokers. And as you know, <laughs> it's the biggest currency of all. So, yeah, definitely. But, yeah, I saw that and I saw West Virginia. I've driven through West Virginia. I went to Roanoke and I passed through there. And just, yeah, the Appalachian Dwarves, that's their place. I mean, they would come through. Because, remember, the Dwarves do magic, too. Yeah, most of their magic users are, are druids of, or something of that nature. But you're going to get some type of maybe a dwarf, an Appalachian Dwarven Magus, which is the Pathfinder uh, Warrior Wizard. They're going to get some magical spell, or they're going to get some spell from uh, the City of Runes, and they might get a plane shift spell, and they come to the second, or they come to the first world, and they're going to be right there in West Virginia, and the Duchess and the clan are going to know about them. They would have made some type of treaty already. So, yeah, definitely when I saw that, I said, oh, that thing. Yeah, there were just some of these that just played really well. Okay, the next one. The Cabal of Families. Now, this is something that myself and Eric T. Spar, Eric the Enabler, former co-host of mine on the show, we planned this out. Now, if you remember from past episodes, Jonathan Michael Price IV was a member of the Price family who gained a treaty with the Bureau. And the Cabal of Families are like 15 or 20 families. They pretty much are Illuminati-esque running various aspects of the world. They, I mean, with the the length and breadth of knowledge that these guys have, they would have found out about the second world even before the Sundering. They might have known when the two worlds were one and they were milling around then. But yeah, the Price family, again, kind of a recap, the Price family are trying to stop the Curlia family, which is basically all of the people who've left various families and they made their own. They basically want to bring the Elder Gods to Earth. The Price family is at the forefront of the battle to stop Clan Curlia. So they decided, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, we've been fighting this war for centuries. Oh, this is cute. This Bureau 13 years has been doing for 150 years. Oh, but they got that secrecy thing, secrecy thing down cold. Yeah, we're going to um, hook up with them. We're going to give them about 150 of our best people, including Jonathan over there. And the way Eric did it, he's acting like he's on a computer, but he looks up, but I'm in records, you know, and just was totally not prepared to join the Bureau. He ended up being one of their best agents, but still just the whole thing behind the Cabal of Families is that, yeah, you got the Price family and the Curlia family, and there's like about 18 other families. Some of them are major players in the world and others due to just inner family battles are now lesser. Their power in the world is diminished. But with the length, I mean, let's face it, the McCanns, 
Hey, Patrick McCann, Solstice International. The Shen family, based in China. There's the Shen family in, in the city of Runes. And of course, these families have spies and servants and whatnot that are all part of this battle. There's a lot of inter-family espionage. So all of them would know in one way or another about the Second World by now. And they, as I said, McCann and Shen, they're heavy into the cross-world trade. They go between the worlds like you and I could walk across the street. Um, let's see, the next one. Reverend Artemis Rotwood. The right Reverend Artemis Rotwood. Had to go to the next part of the PDF here. Here we go. Walk in the backwoods of America. It seems to be a gentleman of the cloth. His fatherly advice, genial manners, and keen wit are a disguise that can fool even the best agents. Rotwood is a necromancer and a carcist who is collecting souls for unknown reasons. Hi, using pack gates to contact the Horde, the Chamber, the Legion of Black Ice, packed Ubinex, which are like weird fleshmancers. Oh no, he would know about the Second World and all the nasty litter. litter. He would know more about the Forge, which leads to the Second World, because when you cast a pack gate spell and you're dealing with all these interstitial entities, you're dealing with the Forge. Therefore, he knows about the Forge really well. And Knowledge Arcana, 18, yeah. Knowledge History, 16. Oh, no, he would know about various things about Earth's supernatural past. He would have done that. Let's see, his research. I didn't give him a research skill. Holy crap, he's a priest. Well, let's see. Well, D20 Modern Stats, Charismatic Hero, 10, Acolyte, 10. Acolyte is like a D20 modern version of a cleric. Yeah, he doesn't actually need research. He's he's you know he's got he's got enough other skills to kind of sort of cover over that. Well, yeah, he, knowledge, theology, and profession of plus seventeen. Oh no, he he would he might have gotten access to the Vatican records because you can use that aforementioned favor here on this earth too. So being well, right reverend, that's not necessarily Catholic. I mean, he's got the Catholic collar, but a right reverend that's usually more. That's more Protestant. That's more like it. This is a Southern Baptist. That's what that is. But still, I'm sure he could gain access to some religious texts that talk about how religion went down in the Second World, which the Greek myths and that they were those were actually outsiders that were posing as gods. So yeah, he would know about the Second World from more religious standpoint. Oh look, the Norse god Tyr converted to Second World Catholicism, you know, 700 years ago or whatever. You know, things like that. No, no, it's in there. Read it. If you read in the first maybe 20 pages of the Second World source book, it talks about as the old gods fell. And then if you look under the Catholic Church um, organization, it mentions the Norse god Tyr converted over to Second World Catholicism. And I'm just sitting there reading that going, Huh? All right, let's see. What other one do we have here? Um, oh, the Wind Willow Coven. Oh, no, 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 no. These people have been a thorn in the Bureau's side since darn near its inception. There has been, I think, two battles with the Wind Willow Coven just in the Black Powder Supplement, if you look in that timeline. Mm -hmm. They had two big round, you know, brouhaha's 
where a lot of bureau agents died. You think they weren't calling in packed gates and demonic influence and all that with that? Well, they're Carsus. It says so. Yeah. That means they're summoning demons. Oh, yeah. And But the Wind Willow Coven, yeah, they're one of the big, as I said, they've been in a bureau foe almost since the beginning. And they would have that power that you can only get from the second world, from the forge. If they're bringing in demons, yeah, they're doing pack eight spells. Yeah, we need that. We need the Balor sword. Thank you. I want to use this for about a minute, you know, and cut through bureau agents. I, as in many at once. If you've ever seen a Balor, you know, in the the I think it's the Devil and that big flaming sword, you can get that with a pack gate. So yeah, definitely the Wind Willow Coven would definitely have um, access to that knowledge. And here we go. Here we go. Uh, based in L.A., D.C., and Kansas City. Mr. Matthias Bolt. Anybody want to fill the listeners in and remind them who Matthias Bolt is? Sure. Yeah. Well, fill me in here. Okay. <laughs> Matthias Bolt, uh, who is, uh, uh, who's actually the head of the Brotherhood of Darkness Incorporated. Uh, he is a very charismatic magician, uh, uh, demon summoner and controller. Um, he is a master manipulator. Uh, so just consider him, you know, if you want to think about someone of, of equal level, just think about any of the, you know, the, the white witches, Sauron, it's a good choice. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he is mass, he has mastery of both ma- magic and also su- summoning of demons. Uh, he summons demons to fix his toaster. Uh-huh. <laughs> he, it, to him, it's nothing. He just calls them and does it. But he, um, and he's built this enormous organization for the purpose of amassing power and controlling the world. Now, he's very much aware of the Bureau. And so because of that, he knows that the Bureau thinks of themselves as a good force for good. So he also makes sure that every one of his important centers of activity, uh, of, of, of training camps and whatever are right next door to a school, a daycare, a hospital. So the Bureau can never come in and annihilate him as they so want to do because they would be killing the very people they've sworn to protect. He's very good at taking the money he's amassed and spreading it around to give him a, you know, a very good, you know, uh, public appearance. Okay. And, and as an individual, he's very elegant. I mean, he's basically the personification of the devil on earth. I mean, he's very elegant. He's very convincing when he talks to you. He's, you know, uh, he almost, he would almost never get angry, you know, unless you like directly attacked him. And probably if you did, then you'd suddenly find, it'd be like, you know, if you were in Babylon five and suddenly you find out that all those shadows around you are actually, you know, got things in them that bite. So, you know, he's never worried. Um, and the only, uh, and the only example we have of where he was ever bested was in the Nick Pilata novels. Oh God. I love that whole, out of all three of the books that Nick wrote, and that was chapter eight, I believe the second book where the main character dresses up and it's an overt disguise. You can tell that it's a PI disguising to look like an older, fatter guy. No, no, no. He just, no, he disguised himself as himself. 
Oh, that's right. He kind of like doubled up on how he looked. Yeah. Yeah, he dark, he blacked out his hair, you know, did everything. He puts he put uh, f- fake lifts into his shoes, all that stuff. But uh, I'll, I'll try to speed this along for Josie, describe what it is. Basically, this character, Josie, this bureau agent, he went in to get this very powerful amulet. And Matthias Bolt had safeguard upon safeguard upon safeguard. And, like, this guy was having to pick locks and do this, and he had to use a spell effect to render Matthias Bolt paralyzed to take this amulet. And then as he leaves, Josie, do you know what a topiary is? It's basically when you sculpt a bush to look like an animal. His entire topiary garden went after this agent because Bolt managed to get out of the paralysis and just went, get him. But that's how Bolt is. He is the contingency plan guy who... And he he does all these things. He is a master strategist. And he often uses it to foil the Bureau because if the Bureau outs him, they out themselves. Right. That is how good Bolt is. Yeah, and if you read at the end, it says on one occasion, J.P. Withers put a 44 Magnum to Bolt's head and then let him live. And I know what this is about. is because he knows that sometime in the future, Earth will face a threat so great that only the combined power of Bolt's organization and Bureau 13 and some of these other ones in other countries will be able to defeat it. And so he let him live. Well, no, it says he also stated that Bolt was not responsible for the massacre of 77. No, no, that's true. It was not Bolt. It was definitely not Bolt. We know that. Well, no, but I'm just saying that was the reason why he let him live. But yeah, what you just said here, folks, again, I'm learning something new. Um, but yeah, Bolt, oh no, he would have knowledge of the second world on many levels. Dealing with the forge and being using pack gates. He would, because of his business holdings, he would know of all the solstice and uh, blue con. Um, let's see, his stats, arcane lore, religion. Oh yeah, he would know. Business, he would know. Research, use magic device. Cypher script. He would know on, on all these skills, he would know about the second world from just about nine or ten different angles. Oh, sure. He, there's no question he would know. Oh. The question is, how, how big is his fingerprint in the second world? Oh, he would. He would well, where do you, well, he'd cheat magic items. Come on. If he wanted to get all his magic items, he'd get them from the second world. He probably has artificers there just day and night cranking out various amulets and wands and staves and trinkets and magic items. And heck, he, you know the man probably has a couple of, well, let's see, he's based in how many cities? Los Angeles, D.C., and Kansas City? Oh, that's at either end of the country in the middle. Hi, yeah. a, shift, a shift gate in each location. And he's, in, and he's in L.A., so he has access to Dream Wardens. Now imagine Bolt having people rummage through your dreamscape. He collected old Nazis. He collected old Nazis as a hobby. And I sometimes said, which old Nazis? Yeah. Former members of the Thule Thule Society? Uh, Let's see. It says his cigarette holder is actually a powerful one, an artifact of the 14th century, and he knows how to use it. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that could have been something else from the second world. 
Because remember, the second world's been around just as long as the first world. It just got separated in 1923, which means that was probably something that could be an artifact of a one of those old outsiders posing as gods or something. All right, we have two more here that I want to get into quick. The Geneva Group, a socioeconomic council dedicated to the control of wealth and nations. The darkest conspiracies that do not use magic are centered in this council. These are the mega wealthy who control the wealth of the planet behind the scenes. They are beyond the law in any governments. They run the production of De Beers, diamond extraction, Russia's Alrusa diamond traders. They are experts at the sale of legal and blood diamonds as well as controlling values. Yeah, they're the arch enemies of the Carster Wade's family in New Frisia, West Virginia. Um, it says they know this family is producing synthetic diamonds that are virtually perfect and indistinguishable from natural diamonds. They want that technology. From espionage to high-tech assassination teams, they've hit this family several times and in turn have had devastating consequences. What they don't understand is that magic is involved. Very powerful magic that is protecting the valley in West Virginia, the family, estate, and local town. Ooh, the incineration of three De Beers board members shocked the council into a temporary lull in hostilities until they understand exactly what is happening. The Bureau and the Geneva Group. Geneva Group has recently begun to track suspected Bureau operatives and know that there is some form of black agency associated with and now protecting the Carstair Wade's family. The black ops diamond conflict may very well grow into a bloody war with a large number of civilians caught in the crossfire. The Bureau would like to avoid this, but the Geneva Group is vastly powerful and has resources worldwide backing their agendas. Their access to high-tech and mercenaries make them an even match for any Bureau team. The Geneva Group would know because they've probably run into the Appalachian Dwarves defending the Carstair Wade's area. Yeah, here it is. Here's guys coming in with bullpup assault rifles. You know a dwarf can sit there and make augmented chain mail. That bu a burst of bullets from an automatic weapon would just bounce right off. And then that dwarf would throw its axe and put it through the Geneva Group soldier's head. We can already see that played out, folks. It would be a, a thing of gory beauty. And so, yeah, the Geneva Group, again, they're trying to explain magically. Wait a minute, we saw this four-foot-tall, three-foot-wide guy put an axe through Bob. We have a problem here. Again, they may not know about the Second World, but again, it's this whole, what they don't understand is magic is involved. They put it through Bob, Bob's ballistic, uh, ballistic plastic uh, body armor, and Bob's ballistic body armor on his back. Oh, no, that's what I mean. The dwarves, remember, they, no, the dwarves make special axes out of, um, was it black iron? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a little more powerful. And the black iron is, they get that from the Appalachian Mountains in the second world. If it's not magical, it's mastercraft. It can be made magical very easily. It's cheaper to make it magically from what I understand. Which means, yeah, you see this black metal axe go flying through a Geneva Group soldier. Again, it would be magically augmented and thrown by a dwarf. Now, would it have return capabilities? I would. I would. Well, yeah, yeah. If you've got somebody who's an artificer, they can put the returning ability on it, no problem. Yeah. So he he makes sure it comes in an arc and comes to the other operative. Yeah. Yeah. So the the Geneva Group would not know of the Second World, but they would have experienced the Appalachian Dwarves defending their friends, the Carcer Waits family. And we have one more. The Red Road Goblin Army. A co social collective of goblins under charismatic leadership. Central Pennsylvania. 
Along Interstate 80 across Pennsylvania is one of the new threats to America. This is the Red Road Goblin Army that hides in the ditches, abandoned deep mines and wilds. Formed in the 1950s, a small cadre of ditch goblins have found a new social path tempered with education and the teachings of Karl Marx. Most ditch goblins are solitary scavengers, picking the remains at the edge of civilization and hiding most of the time. These goblins are smarter and more aggressive in nature. They could have come through a breach from the Huron Wild. They could have been living in the forest with the Iroquois elves, came through in the 50s, and they've now been here for about 60 years. I just put that, came from Second World, just simple, direct. Because goblins exist in in the Second World easily, yeah. I mean, and remember, another thing that goblins do, they breed like rabbits. You can get a bunch of goblins really easy, just, yeah. For those of you out there, when a mommy uh, goblin, it, daddy it goblin, it says mommy, they're not fast breeders. Yeah, down the bone. That could have changed due to the uh, transition over to first world. Because of the lack of magic, they could have lost that. And there is a term, fecundity, f-e-c-u-n-d, fecund. Yeah, that's that's how 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 much they reproduce. Right, and that could have been diminished because of the relative lesser magic here on the first world. This is something I look at and say, wait a second. And our female listeners will say, no way, no how. The average goblin gestation is 10 years. Not 10 months. 10 years. Your preggers. 10 years and a generation can take 30 years to mature from infancy without magic. Okay. There's a very simple solution for that, John. Eggs. Yeah. That works. There's no reason for a female to carry a goblin for 10 years. That's true. And and doesn't say how many it doesn't say how many they uh, how many eggs they lay. So it could be, oh yeah, it takes 10 years to eggs for eggs to hatch, but they lay them in batches of 12. Let's see. Or 100. Uh, several captured goblins tell of a deep mine turned into a collective kingdom where goblins are taught by Comrade Stalin. This is a safe place that will see the birth of a new generation of smart goblins that plan to supplant humanity. Yeah, as I said, these are just, they could have spilled over from the Huron Wild and they found the Communist Manifesto and just adopted that philosophy and they've been in central Pennsylvania now for 60 years. They are, they're the descendants or possibly, you know, still remaining of the original travelers through some warp from the the Huron Wild to central Pennsylvania. And let's see, along Interstate 80? Oh, yeah, Pennsylvania Turnpike, yeah. Oh, that means also probably Team Cavalier would have dealt with them. Oh, yeah, because remember, Shannon Trisha are in Pittsburgh, and I take, I take I-80 to go to Monroeville where they live, so yeah. There's a further note saying that the Bureau is afraid that they're going to sp- spread west into the south as well, so... Oh, yeah, yeah. But they're mainly into stealing things. I'll be ready for them. Yeah, there you go. All right. Um, yeah, I think we, yeah, I covered all the ones that I had. I mean, I, and, and John and Bruce came up with a couple others that I was kind of, and I, I kind I should always go with my gut instinct. I was like, eh, but, nah, I won't do that. No. But yes, those are the organizations and people who have connections to the second world that are affiliated in one way or another, either due to 
being a friend of neutral or an enemy of Bureau 13. Again, as I said, the second world source book available on PDF from the onebookshelf.com sites. And in the fans of the TriTac podcast Facebook group, I have added four of the free PDFs that were originally available on the old secondworldsimulations.com site. And they, they were free to begin with. So it's not like I'm buying something and giving it away. You know, these were free from Go. Stephen Palmer Peterson put them on the site. It was supplemental material for the Second World Sourcebook. They are now in the file section of the fans of the TriTech Podcast Facebook group. I just added them today as of this taping. Um, as I said, all of this has been added due to the open content license that Mr. Peterson put in the Second World Sourcebook. So I made these facets canon for Bureau 13 now, thereby adding a little more awesome to an already awesome game. Now, if you have any questions or comments about this particular topic, we have the fans of the TriTech podcast. We have Bureau 13 Agents Everywhere and Fringeworthy RPG fans on Facebook. We have the Google Plus forums that John keeps a very sharp eye on, as well as TriTechGamers.com. I believe Yahoo groups are still in existence. If you are on iTunes, please comment there and... We will get to those comments and questions as soon as we hear about them. And we, we, once we get them, we get the response right away. If you have, as I said, we, we love comments, feedback from you guys. It's wonderful. It, it, it's a returning cycle. You give us stuff and then we fire right back with, okay, this is what we think. And so by all means, please comment, comment, comment on those aforementioned sources. We will have much more for you next week. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait, you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers, this was the TriTech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.